My name is Wes, and normally what follows when somebody introduces themselves is I'm one of the pastors here, but I'm not. I'm simply one of you. And every once in a while, I get the opportunity to speak and preach here. I don't do it as much as I used to. And so there's a seriousness about preaching that that overwhelms me when when I get up here on a Sunday morning. A seriousness that that needs to be balanced with I don't take myself seriously. And so hopefully there's that balance there for you as well. We've worshiped together. We've gathered together with the presence of the Holy Spirit directing us through the music, through the conversation. The buzz here is incredible that the as we touch each other with, with, with words, that, that's part of worship as well. And now we want to get into God's word and, and discover what he has for us this morning. December 5th, I received a text from Pastor Kevin. The text's message was, would I be willing to preach on February 11th, which is this Sunday? I was working on a project in the basement at that point, and so Dreen saw that I got this message, she came down to the garage said, Wes, Kevin's asking you to preach February 11th. I, I think the text is Luke chapter 20. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yeah, sure. Email him or text him back and tell him that I will. Later, I get up and I, and I look at the message that he, he had sent me and I discovered that it was a message on the parable of the talents. And, and my first thought was, how do you make this very, very familiar parable memorable. My best thinking happens on the mountain. So I'm coming down the trail and my brain is on fire. I'm coming up with message sermon titles. I'm coming up with ideas, stories, ways of of preaching the sermon. I get to church on Sunday. I see Kevin. I rush up to him and I tell him, Kevin, God has just given me this message on, on parable of the talents. And all I have to do now is read the passage. I get home, and I open my Bible to Luke chapter 20, and I begin reading. I get to verse 9, and it says, He, Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately 
because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. I get to the end, and I'm asking myself, what happened to the parable of the talents? <laughs> this is the parable of the tenants. And then I saw my mistake. You know, research has shown that in order to read and comprehend a word, you don't need all the letters to be in the right order. You simply need the first and last letters to be there. And then I saw it. You know, there's, there's a, I, I have a screen for you that, uh, let's see if you can read this. What does it say? You can read this, right? It doesn't matter where, what order the letters are in, as long as the first and last are, are there. Tenants and talents begin and end with the last letters, with the same letters. My brain saw talents when in fact the word was tenants. It's amazing how my brain sees what it wants to see. How often we hear or misread things incorrectly. The characters in our story here in Luke chapter 20 are having a hard time reading Jesus. In fact, they're misreading Jesus. And if we step back into Luke chapter 19, we find ourselves in the middle of a crowd parading Jesus into Jerusalem, and we're singing this refrain, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This refrain is taken directly from Psalm 118. The crowd is ushering Jesus into Jerusalem, singing words of promise written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. From the very first chapter of this gospel, Luke has been introducing us to King Jesus, God's deliverer, the Messiah. And at every turn and crossroad, the leaders of Israel have been misreading Jesus. King, no. Galilean rebel, yes. Deliverer, no. Dangerous, most likely. Messiah, no. Menace, yes. Let's go back to the beginning of, of Luke chapter 20. Chapter 20 begins with a confrontation in the temple between the leaders and Jesus. To us, this confrontation appears civil. The context for the conf this confrontation happens at the end of Luke chapter 19. At the end of 19, Jesus has cleared out the temple. He's cleared out the businesses that have taken up their places in the Gentile court. And as the chapter ends, we're told that the leaders, identified as the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they were trying to kill Jesus. They're not pleased. Not pleased is a mild way of putting it. These guys believe that their honor, their standing, their position in the community was at stake. This is an honor and shame culture. This is the culture of the Bible. Jesus clearing the temple had brought shame on these religious leaders. They were supposed to be in charge. How dare he step into their space, take over some of their responsibilities, and embarrass them. And who can blame them? If someone would come into your workplace and start doing your job, parts and pieces of your job description, which you really enjoy, you want to know why. But this goes even deeper than that. 
The leaders really don't want to know why he did it. They simply want to discredit him, to shame him. Honor was a limited commodity in their world. Having lost honor, they needed to gain it back, to recover it. They had lost it to Jesus, and from Jesus, they would have to gain it back. This was the unspoken code. So the religious leaders come to Jesus in the temple, the most public space in town, and they question him. The public nature of their questioning tells us that they're not looking for an answer. They're looking for revenge. Individuals who wanted their questions answered came to Jesus privately. The disciples, after the crowd left, would come to Jesus and ask him questions. Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he wanted answers. He wanted the truth. He wasn't looking for honor. The religious leaders know the game they're playing. Tell us, by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? They're reading Jesus. They watched him being paraded into the city as king, as Messiah. They watched him clear out the temple, reclaiming this God's house of prayer. They're reading Jesus and they're mixing up the letters. And instead of reading Messiah, they're reading menace. Jesus, who gave you this authority? Their trap is set. They hadn't given him authority, and according to best practices and the protocol of the day, they were the only ones qualified to give authority. They represented God and Rome. This is where their honor rested. Jesus, who gave you this authority? And Jesus answers with a question of his own. Tell me, John's baptism... Was it from heaven or of human origin? This is a high-stakes drama. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? High stakes are being played for the team that wins is, is going to be honored. San Francisco 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs. Woo! I have, I don't care who wins. The bills are gone, and so it doesn't matter to me, so I'll enjoy the game. It'll be a great game to watch. But the winners get praise, and, and they receive honor. The loser limps off into infamy with tears in their eyes. Much is at stake, but no one's going to lose their life. The contest Jesus was in had much higher stakes on the line. It was the intention of the religious leaders to leave with their honor intact and, and Jesus' life in their hands. As soon as Jesus asked the question, these guys realized that their plan has been flipped on its head. If they answered John's baptism was of human origin, a riot would break out because the people believed that John was sent from God. A prophet sent from God. And if they answered, John's baptism was from God, the next question would be, why didn't you believe and repent? And so they respond and say, well, we, we, we don't know. We don't know where John's authority came from. To which Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
The religious leaders continue to misread Jesus. Messiah gets misread for menace. Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he tells them a story. He tells them a parable. A man buys a plot of land. He sets up a vineyard and he rents out this land to, to tenant farmers. And when he thinks that the grapes have matured, the vines have matured, he sends a servant to collect his share of the harvest. The servant gets there, he's mistreated and sent away with nothing. The landowner sends more, more servants. They all get turned away, sent back. And then the landowner thinks to himself, what should I do next? And he says, well, if I send my much-loved son, or more directly, my beloved son, which means my one and only son, surely they ought to respect him. When the tenants see the son arrive, they talk amongst themselves and say, if we get rid of him, we will be heirs to this vineyard. And Jesus concludes the story by saying, that the owner then will come, kill the present tenants, and give the vineyard to others. A parable seems disarming on the surface. It's a story, and what harm is there in telling a good story? And as we identify with the good guys, we relax. In this story, it's the owner of the vineyard who's the good guy. The religious leaders felt deeply for this owner. They were the largest landowners in the land. They had dealt with deadbeat tenants, but none so murderous. Hearing the injustice done to the landowner, they're incensed. But as the story continues to unfold, they become more and more uncomfortable. One writer said, a parable is an earthquake opening the ground at your feet. A parable is an earthquake opening the ground at your feet. And as the story washes over them, the leaders recognize the imagery Jesus is using. The Old Testament prophets and psalmists talk about God planting Israel, his chosen people, like a vine into the promised land. He tends it, he watches over it, he sends people to warn it when the vine has gotten out of control, when the weeds have threatened to overrun it. The psalmist in Psalm 80 said, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Jeremiah, recording God, he says, I planted you like a choice vine, a sound and, of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? This is a story of God's vineyard, Israel, planted in the promised land. Those left in charge, the leaders, they've become controlling, overly possessive, murderous. And when God sent his messengers to Israel, the prophets, to warn them, they were disregarded. Many times the messengers were abused, even killed. Jesus refers to this ill treatment of the prophets in Luke chapter 6. And he warns his followers that they're going to be treated like the prophets of old. In Luke 6, he says, Blessed are those when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. 
for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. The latest prophet, John the baptizer, was received with cool indifference by these leaders. They refused to heed his warning and repent. The religious leaders are caught flat-footed by the direction the story is taken. The Old Testament prophet Nathan used the same storytelling technique when he confronted King David for sleeping with Bathsheba and then doing away with her husband Uriah. I heard recently that if you want to reach someone, the best way is through the heart, not the head. And the prophet Nathan did this very well in 2 Samuel 12. He told David a story, a story of of a rich sheep and cattle rancher. This rich man has a guest come and visit him. And rather than taking a, a lamb from his own fold, he goes to his neighbor and he takes his neighbor's ewe lamb And it's his neighbor's only you. Hearing the story, David burns with anger. He wants to right the wrong, the injustice. He felt deeply for the poor farmer. The trap was set. Nathan looked at David and he said, you are the man. You are the man. You're the one responsible for this great injustice. And and David was overcome with guilt and remorse. He, He felt the shame of what he had done, and he repented. By the time Jesus finishes the parable of the tenants, an earthquake has opened the ground beneath the feet of the religious leaders, and they're about to be swallowed whole. The trap has sprung. Unlike King David, who experienced shame and remorse and repented, the target audience of this parable walk away angry, more determined than ever to kill him. The irony of their reaction to the parable is lost on them. Here we have a parable foreshadowing a future event, the death of God's son, Jesus From the beginning of the gospel, Luke has been spelling out for us who Jesus is. He's God's son. He's God's Messiah. From the beginning, the leaders have misread Jesus. And they're even more convinced that he's no Messiah. He's a menace they have to kill. The parable was indeed an answer to the question they had asked earlier. Who gave you this authority, Jesus? This parable is also a warning His authority, Jesus' authority, came from God, the owner of the vineyard, and they were in great danger of being replaced as leaders if they didn't recognize God's beloved Son sent to them. Jesus puts an exclamation mark on his warning by quoting from Psalm 18. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the second quote from Psalm 118. The first one was the refrain used by the crowd parading Jesus into Jerusalem. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The reaction of the leader to this parable shows that Jesus was rejected. He didn't measure up. He was discarded, thrown onto the scrap heap. A stone the builders rejected. If you've ever been on a job site where there are creating a building. There's material all over the place waiting to be thrown away, tossed out, put in the bin. That's just part of of, of the place. 
And the day that I received Kevin's text, I was in the garage working on a project for Christmas, this Christmas tree. I wanted to create this tree and put it outside our front door to be welcoming for guests that came by. I'd got the branches, I had the wood for the, the branches of, of the tree, but I didn't have the trunk. Something that, that would pull it all together and hold it together. Now, I don't throw out any scrap wood. My garage is full of scrap wood. And so I began moving through the various piles of scrap I had. And I found a piece of solid maple, thick at the bottom, that tapered off to nothing at the end, an awkward shape. I'd seen this piece many times. It's probably been in the garage for well over 10 years. And every time I saw it, I'd lay it aside and say, no, that doesn't work. But that day, I found it and said, this is the perfect piece that will finish the tree. It will tie it together, pull it together, hold it together. Something that had been kicking around for years with no purpose had finally had a purpose. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that every other builder had overlooked in this is the stone that God will use to anchor his fresh work in Jesus Christ. A new temple, a new building that's being constructed for worship, the place where heaven and earth intersect, and God is building it out of living stones, out of us. And Jesus is being laid out as the foundation stone, the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone. The new house of worship is grounded in Christ, finished in Christ, and held together by him. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's a warning sewn into the fabric of this story. This is a warning that crosses the divide of time and space and, and lands at our feet. But there's something about warnings that, that put us on edge. We don't like being warned. We don't live in a shame-honor society, but we do feel shame. When I receive a warning, I'm embarrassed. I think, ah, oh, I should have done better. I'm, I feel ashamed. You know, the only warning that I like is the one where you pulled over because you know you've been speeding, and the officer comes to you and he says, today, I'm going to give you a warning, not a speeding ticket. That's the kind of warning I like. All other warnings tend to make me defensive and on guard. The religious leaders are reeling. They're back on their heels. Jesus hits them with a further warning in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Our pride causes us to misread Jesus. Sometimes Jesus does fall on us like a stone, breaking us. That's what happened to King David when the prophet Nathan revealed his injustice. This resulted in repentance, David setting a new course for his life. Jesus did say that it is the broken who need a doctor. If Jesus falls on us and breaks us, we can be sure that he will raise us up again. Dan and Bernie Workington were pastor couple at the Valley View Bible Church, the MB Church in Kamloops. A few years ago, I heard him tell a story about when he was a youth. 
He bought a truck, his very first vehicle, a four by four, and he immediately took it four-wheeling up behind Sumas Mountain. And because of his exuberance and inexperience, he got it stuck, really stuck, so that the two of them, him and his friend, had to hike back into Abbotsford and find a tow truck driver willing to take them back up there and pull the truck out. He found such a tow truck driver, and they got up there, and, and the tow truck gets hooked to the 4x4 and begins winching the 4x4 out, but it's not moving. In fact, the tow truck is being pulled towards the muck. But this is an experienced driver, and so he pulls out some chains, and, and there's this rock, this, this huge stone in front of the tow truck, and he wraps his chains around and hooks his tow truck to that rock, and he begins winching the four-by-four four out of the muck, and it begins moving slowly out of the mud. Dan went on to describe that stone as Jesus Christ, the immovable one. Jesus is the stone that was rejected and has become our cornerstone. Jesus is the stone that was rejected and has become the foundation upon which we build our lives. Toby Mack has a song on praise, one of 6.5, called Cornerstone. And I walked into the house and that song was playing just as in this part of the sermon. I thought, boy, that song speaks to what I want to communicate this morning. And so I went and found the lyrics and I wrote them down and I thought, boy, if I could only sing them to you. <laughs> and Doreen cringed and prayed hard that I wouldn't try. But I want to read these words to you. Seasons come and seasons go. They take me high, they leave me low. But I'm still standing on the only rock I know. You're my cornerstone, oh, oh, oh. No matter where I go, my cornerstone. On Christ, the solid rock, I'm standing. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I'm standing. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I'm standing. Yes, Lord. What I didn't know when I first heard the song was the genesis of the song. And, and I got curious as I was thinking about the song, why did Toby Mac write this song? And I went and I discovered the reason for it. The song was birthed at the funeral of Toby Mac's eldest, his firstborn son, Consumed by pain and grief over this tragic loss, he addressed his family. He said, we cannot build on the promises of this world. They will let us down every time. We have to build on the promises of God. We have to build our lives on the solid rock, the cornerstone. It's so easy to misread Jesus as unimportant, trivial, even a menace to our lives. I don't know how well you take to warnings. I know I don't. But some warnings can save our lives. The ones who read Jesus correctly were the ones that received sight, spiritual sight. Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Luke 19, the Samaritan leper in Luke 17, the blind beggar in Luke 18. How do we know that they regained sight, their spiritual sight? They followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. For followers of Jesus, 
Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. Madame Lengel, the author of A Wrinkle in Time, and a Christian made this remark. She said, some things have to be believed to be seen. Some things have to be believed to be seen. Believing is seeing is following. Believing is seeing is following. I want to invite our worship team to come up at this time. Our prayer team is going to be available up front on both sides of, of the worship center. Also, you can go to the prayer room if that's where you'd like to receive prayer. But do avail yourself of prayer this morning if God is working in your heart. I really wrestled with the response to this sermon. And as I was wrestling with the response, Pastor Kevin he phoned me up and asked, Hey, Wes, would communion work? in the sermon somehow, would, would that work? And, and then all of a sudden it hit me, that's the perfect response, a brilliant response. Communion reminds us that God, the Father, the owner of the vineyard, sent his beloved son to redeem his wayward tenants, us. Communion is a very physical act of remembering and declaring our allegiance to Jesus, our Messiah. Communion is a reminder of how to read Jesus correctly. Brian Martin, a pastor on the island, he wrote this, I'm constantly amazed that God would choose to die for us than to live without us. I'm constantly amazed that God would choose to die for us than to live without us. God demonstrated his love for us through Jesus' death. When we eat the bread, we remember Jesus' broken body on the cross. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of the life and the blood and that his blood shed for us covers us, atones us, makes us one with him, reconciled children in right relationship with him. And so I want to invite those who understand the meaning of communion, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and word and life, are accountable to their congregation and are living in right relationship with God, and others to join us in participating in the Lord's Supper this morning. The Apostle Paul records the words of Jesus that surround the Last Supper, and he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have servers that are up front here. So if you come down the two side aisles and then return back through the center aisle, that would be wonderful. There's a table in the back in the balcony that those in the balcony balcony can go and be served and if you have mobility issues just stay where you are Kevin is going to go around and, and serve you when you receive the elements the bread and the cup you can partake of it at any time 
You can go back to your seat and, and partake with the people that you're sitting with. I know sometimes life groups like to find each other and, and go out somewhere and, and, and partake of communion together. So do that. But after you received it, know that you can partake in it at any time. Again, the words that Jesus spoke. Breaking the bread, Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us give thanks for the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the gift of Jesus, the cornerstone of our lives, the one that we build our lives on. We thank you for his death, for his broken body, the blood that was shed for us. And as we remember, Lord, help us to rejoice and celebrate. Lord, thank you for this community where we can share this together and respond to you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. Bless this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.